Welcome back to Are You For Real with Sarah Frick. Today we are at our second part of our three-part series of the overturn of Roe. And I have on the phone with me from Portland, Oregon, a Presbyterian minister, Carmen Getches, who actually used to be a minister at the church that John and I used to go to in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. So thank you so much for joining us, Carmen. Glad to be with you, Sarah. Um, Carmen is, from my point of view, which is the only one that matters, just kidding, (laughs) but Carmen is a really lovely woman and her and I have gone back and forth for the years since she moved. She was moved to Charleston to work at our church right after Grace passed and was with me through many different things. Um, Always been someone that I feel I can talk to openly, whether our opinions are the same or not. Um, So give us just a little bit of background about you, Carmen, and then we'll kind of dive in. Yeah, so I have been a person of faith all my life. I was raised Roman Catholic, spent formative years in an evangelical church, and finally found myself at home in the Presbyterian Church, where I've been a pastor for 15 years. And I was so glad that you reached out to me because I really feel like the voice of the religious right is really loud on this issue of abortion. And I feel like it's important for people to know that there are many, many people of faith, including Christian clergy, Muslim, Jewish clergy who are pro-choice. And I have come to that conclusion not because they ignore their faith or are ignorant or somehow water down the teachings um, of their faith, but have come to the conclusion that abortion can be moral for a variety of reasons. So that is a little bit of a background, but I don't know if you want to know personal things. No, I mean, not. well, I mean, we could talk for hours, but <laughs> we, we have a purpose here. Um, yes. So, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of like shoot it to you just from things that I've heard. And this is what's so interesting, I think, about this series is that I'm getting to talk with three different people from three different backgrounds from, you know, that it's like you were there's so much information right now out there. And I think right. a lot of us, myself included, which I know isn't probably the smartest way or getting a lot of stuff on social media. Um, and then depending on which network you put your news on, you're getting one conversation or you're getting another conversation. And, you know, I, when we had to terminate my second pregnancy after grace at 11 weeks, Mm -hmm. I remember speaking to the head minister at the church at the time. And he was, he supported me, you know, he knew what we were going through. He knew where I had been emotionally. He knew what my body had been through physically. And he said, point blank, you're doing the right thing. God does not want you to suffer. God does not want this child to suffer. And I really leaned into that. And I've always believed that. Um, So what kind of conversations are happening around your church or that you hear from other people of the faith? So it's tricky because currently I'm serving a denomination that's pretty progressive And by progressive, it is open and supportive of women's reproductive rights and their bodily autonomy. And so in a lot of ways, I am in my own kind of vacuum. It's been really helpful for me to actually talk to my best friend who's LDS, super conservative, staunch conservative, was delighted that Roe was overturned because she and I have had really interesting conversations because the world she lives in is so profoundly different than mine. And one of the things that we we got to was a conversation about her ectopic pregnancy, because basically any of us who get to childbearing uh, years are going to have loads of friends and colleagues who have had either spontaneous abortions or have needed abortions. And even folks who fall in these far right categories bump into some moral ambiguity 
And that's where I feel like the conversations have to be had with more generosity and sensitivity and humility, because right now there is so much disdain, it seems like, in these polarities that we're living in. And it's only when you talk about the more complex realities of pregnancies, just like the one that you mentioned, just like your entire story that I know that you've told to your listeners and people know intimately and have experienced in different ways themselves, right? Right. There is pain, there is suffering, there is complexity around pregnancies and the lives that are holding those um, babies in their bodies, right? And so if we can have some more complex conversations um, about those, I think that's where things can become more interesting and potentially bridges can be built. So what, what, and if you're <clears throat> comfortable enough to share, like, so what are th- these conversations you're having with, you know, your friends that are very conservative and are very happy about this decision? Because what I'm learning just in my very early stages of advocacy, I'm, I've decided that my next job in life, I'm have to be an activist because I'm actually kind of good at it. So, um, Excellent. is that, <laughs> is that, I think there's a lot of issues right now that are making people activists. And yeah. I think we have to lean into that. When I lived in Mount Pleasant, uh, just because of probably where I came from, I remember a parishioner once introduced me in the, like right before a major surgery, there was a room full of people, all of our family, they were staunch conservatives. I walked into the room and she said, Oh, hello everyone. This is Carmen. She's my pastor and she is the most liberal person I know. <laughs> you said, <laughs> well, hello. 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 But I think there are, and w- people constantly was, were telling me that I was such a radical and I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I'm like, I'm like the most unradical person ever. And yet there are things that drive us to become activists. And I think right now this is one of those for many people. So, so- I think you're pretty pretty normal. <laughs> yes, I, I feel I, well, I don't feel normal, but I feel like I'm in the right place. But so I mean, what do you say to people or people that are listening that kind of feel the same way you feel like God mm. says in the Bible, and you know, talking about I mean, we could take this further, right talking about gay rights and all right. that stuff. Like, you know, what what do you say? What should people say? I mean, or not what should people say? Like, what's the conversation around it? You know, I just, Mm -hmm. because like I said to you yesterday, I was texting Carmen and I just said, I personally, you know, I don't feel right now and where I am, like, I don't feel a lot of God in this for me personally. And, Mm, um, because I'm being told like, you know, I put this post out the, or did something the other day. And from a woman I know it was like, literally the response was abortion is murder. And okay, um, I think that's exactly the big problem right now because, and I was actually raised with that definition. I don't know if you were. I remember in the church in which I was raised, and simultaneously in sex ed in high school, abortion was introduced very briefly, and it was described with this blanket definition. Abortion is a procedure that kills babies in the womb. Mm -hmm. And when we are left with that definition, anyone with a heart has a visceral response, like a functioning moral code has this visceral response to that because no one wants to kill babies, Mm -hmm. no matter where you land on this issue. No one wants to kill babies. But when we are left with this blanket statement, there's not a lot of room, right? Which is why there's a lot of people on the far right when they are using that reductionistic definition of a broad array of complex procedures, right? Mm -hmm. When we are left with that reductionistic definition, there's not a lot of room to go, right? So I pushed my friend when she and I were having this conversation who who shared that same blanket definition, right? That all forms of abortion 
are killing babies, mm-hmm. which is why it got tricky when we led to the conversation about the ectopic pregnancy, right? Um, because she had so, to take, she had to terminate that pregnancy. That's right. Yeah. For her survival. Right. Right. And, um, and how, what was her converse? What did she say to you about that? She sent me a bunch of emojis that were crying emojis. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, but what I think that the tricky thing about, um, reducing any conversation and then the worst for me as a Christian, when people then sort of make these very um, base statements, like if you abort a baby, you are killing, or if you abort a pregnancy, you are killing a baby. Um, And God thinks killing is wrong. All of a sudden you have the authority of God almighty on your side. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, and I think what feels really unfair is this whole conversation has been co-opted by a really narrow group of Christians. And what I wish people would recognize is that these conversations about when life begins have been going on for generations and there is not universal agreement. And so we need to trust one another enough to have conversations about ethics And so I asked her, and this is where the conversation additionally turned. I said, tell me about where, when you think life begins. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this like early cellular reproduction? Because that's on the line right now, right? If we're talking that, that eight cells in vitro fertilization, right? right? Mm -hmm. Eight cells constitute a baby, which constitutes a human being with personhood. What kind of rights are we allocating to that person? And do they share the same rights? as the people person who produced those cells. Right. And so this is where this is becoming very tricky. And I feel like, uh, it's a pretty unfair assessment and almost nowhere in the globe. I mean, unless we're talking really, really, really strict, um, perspectives or groups of people, no one thinks that gestationally, a one week, two week old baby, or even there's a lot of folks that are saying that, you know, as soon as you have a heartbeat, you're, you're a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no one thinks that this is a baby that you're killing, right? Like this is really like the laws that are currently on the books with the overturning of Roe v. Wade in so many states are extraordinarily conservative. Mm-hmm. And so here's where I think it's sort of interesting that for me, 10 years ago, I went to visit my cousin in Denmark. She and her family had moved there and she was a high school teacher at the time. And because I was this new minister, I was the dog and pony show because they're an extremely secular society. And my cousin's like, I cannot wait to take you to my students because they're going to meet a real religious American mm-hmm. and they're going to have a lot of questions for you. And sure enough, these sophomores in high school in Denmark are like, wow, right. Tell us all about you <laughs> because you think you are an anomaly. You are fascinating. So I do this little half an hour spiel on religious history in the United States. And then they got to ask any questions they wanted. And do you know what, in every class I visited, and I visited a lot of classes, they all wanted to know about two things. They wanted to know about guns. They were like, why are you in America obsessed with your guns? Mm -hmm. And two, they said, what is the controversy about abortion in your country, we don't understand it. And then I was perplexed. I'm like, why isn't abortion controversial here? Because it's legal they, there, I'm assuming. So here's what's really interesting. And this is in a lot of European countries. So medical ethicists, philosophers, clergy, government, they got together to have really important conversations about when life began gestationally. 
Okay. What meaning when does a fetus begin to have rights that are comparable to those outside the womb. Mm -hmm. And this is a critical conversation that we have not been having and there isn't any sort of universal agreement about it, right? Well, so in Denmark, they decided, look, reproductive rights are critical to the health and well-being of a society and for a woman's life. And I'm using tons of gendered language and I'm so sorry. That's okay. There's a lot of people that carry babies that are not women. But uh, anyway, so that being said, um, they've had these, conversations long ago and made the decision that up to 12 weeks, uh, a person can access a, uh, an abortion, no questions asked, because this is a critical component to reproductive health and bodily autonomy. So uh, after 12 weeks, I mean, I'm talking 12 weeks in a day, unless a doctor and a set of doctors, and there's a very specific procedure that you move through, uh, gives specific permission Mm -hmm. because of potential bodily harm to um, a mother or uh, the fact that maybe a baby isn't going to be a viable uh, little baby outside the womb. There are reasons that um, people can still have abortions beyond that. But this is up until then, this is sort of part and parcel of reproductive health and societal health. And so these little sophomores are like telling me all about it. And they're like, we just don't understand. Those are not babies. Those are not babies you're killing. Right. Well, for them, there's no moral ambiguity. So it makes this so much easier than us where there are these grand polarities that exist. And if we are not intentionally listening to one another to try to build some sort of uh, consensus around um, these rights and really engage in difficult conversations about when life begins and when life earns its own set of rights, I think we're not going to get anywhere. So, so Lynn, let me ask you this. So what is your, and I'm kind of like jumping all over the place and we can go back and forth, but you know, you know, after I share my story, I also, as my belief is, you know, my story is unique to me, but I do believe Mm -hmm. that women have the right to choose. I think, you know, that a lot of People, most people I know had have had sex before they were ready to be parents, had sex before they were married. I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of people I know. And um, I believe in second chances. I believe in third chances. I believe mistakes happen. So what uh, what is your take on that? Like they don't know if the fetus they don't know if the child is, you know, say a woman like say she's on birth control and all of a sudden she's like, my stomach's getting I feel sick. Right. Like I feel I start to feel sick, like maybe even at like 13 weeks. And she's like, I'm not ready for this at all. I'm 16 years old. I don't even want to tell my parents. I'm terrified. If she comes to you, what, what, how do you advise her? (laughs) Well, it would be easier. It's easier that I'm in the state of Oregon. Right. Isn't that terrible? Right. Because it's terrible. Yes. Ramifications (laughs) for me to say what would be my natural instinct was to, which would be to be a pastor to her and extend compassion. Right. Um, as an adolescent, depending on her circumstances, like if she comes from a, a home that is brutal and won't be compassionate with her, uh, that'll be even more tricky because I think inviting her to engage, not just myself, but some other caring adults in a supportive system is going to be critical because I think on the other side of what I would recommend is certainly an abortion if that's what she wants to do, mm-hmm. right? If she wants to terminate that pregnancy, I would absolutely be with her, support her in any way she needs it. Um, at the same time, when you're talking about a minor, like an adolescent like that, I'm always looking for a broader 
support system for her, not just the pastor who's giving her the thumbs up, right? Because that's not enough because her life will continue with this woven into her life as a part of her story. And she is going to need ongoing supportive voices that help her make sense of her ongoing journey, right? So I would likely encourage parental participation in the conversation, et cetera, et cetera. If they're the right folks, right? This is really tricky. You know, if these are abusive parents, that might be a little bit different, right? But she's going to need support, including from her clergy, just like you received, right? Yep. And the fact is whether you are a mama nine weeks gestation who is hemorrhaging or a 12 year old rape victim or a single mama whose birth control failed or a person carrying a terminally ill baby, all of these, all of these circumstances um, are devastating in different ways. And those women should be moral agents in their own lives. And they should be given the choice to terminate a pregnancy because their life matters. Right. They are beloved children of God. They themselves are crafted with purpose and joy. And I do not believe God condemns them in their choices, but is powerfully and gracious near to them in those choices. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I feel you on that. So, and like just hearing you speak, it, 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 that's how I feel too. It makes so much sense. And, and I keep going back to this, but I think it's because this is where it's become so polarizing is that people just yeah. keep going, but the Bible, but the Bible, how, how, you know, and, and how do you respond to that? Because I know that, that book, that doctor means so much to you. So what do you, <laughs> well, Sarah Frick, I have to tell you this. <laughs> I, think. I cannot tell you how many times people have said to me, but the Bible says, and I have leaned into them and have said, can you please tell me where in the Bible it says that? Right. Because people use what are sacred stories to many of us as weapons mm. of war. They are tools to abuse and manipulate. And even in sometimes on occasion, people might extract some teaching from scripture completely out of context to justify a perspective and I find that deeply offensive, right? Right, Because it's just treating something that is really sacred as trivial, mm -hmm. right? Something to be used uh, for my own means. Yes. So that's, well, I feel like that's kind of where this whole conversation lies. Like, and I love your, just your perspective, just as a, a mother, a woman, like, mm -hmm. I, when I remember when Ruth died, my dad, who is you know, very, very liberal. And, um, he said to me, he said, Sarah, they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And we were standing in my kitchen and I was with my kids and the woman that helps with my children, Erica, who's wonderful. And her and I both remember him saying that. And I looked, I was like, there goes my crazy lib dad. You know, I was like, that's fucking insane. Like, excuse me. I was right. like, there's no way that right. that's going to happen. And here we are. I mean, did you see, did you, as someone that pays attention, like, did you feel like this was coming? So with the Supreme Court transformation, I was pretty terrified. Yeah. But let's be honest, one and two, because the world is so chaotic and we have been hit with wave upon wave upon wave of insanity. And I cannot tell you how many times I've looked at my husband across the kitchen and said, how could things get possibly worse? Mm -hmm. And it does. Right. So literally globally, not just in the United States, there has been wave upon wave. And I think we're exhausted. So all this to say, even when the Supreme Court was transformed, I mean, because look, what a joke. When some of these potential like now justices were being interviewed, I literally wanted to ask my conservative friends, which I never had the courage to do. 
are you kidding me? Right. Brett Kavanaugh, that's right. the best guy. Like, let's, I mean, I wouldn't want him to come over and be alone with my children. Right. Right. Like, right. I don't know. You're kind of a creepo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Plastic Surgery of the Carolinas. Say hello to the Skin Pen microneedling device. This non-surgical solution is highly popular for reducing signs of aging, enlarged pores, uneven skin tone and texture, and diminishing acne scars. The Skin Pen creates tiny micro injuries that stimulates the body's natural healing process, promoting the production of collagen and elastin. In addition, your very own platelet-rich plasma, or otherwise known as PRP, is infused and applied to the skin. PRP contains high concentration of platelets, stem cells, and growth factors, and penetrates your skin through the tiny channels the microneedles create. The PRP supercharges the benefits from microneedling and addresses under-eye puffiness and dark circles to give you a more youthful, well-rested appearance with little to no downtime. Plastic Surgery of the Carolinas is a premier plastic surgeon's office and med spa located on Long Point Road in Mount Pleasant. Achieve more youthful skin that looks and feels healthier by getting a skin pen with PRP treatment today. While they are offering a limited time only treatment pricing for just $350, that's 50% off. To schedule or inquire about this promotion, please call their office at 843-881-3881 and always mention the works. But I'll be honest, I don't think I ever thought they would touch Roe because I underestimated just how powerful and strong this movement is. And I think there's a lot of really brilliant people out there that do reproductive justice work that probably know a lot about this historically that would be super interesting to talk to. I mean, I'm no expert in this. I mean, what I am an expert in is what scripture says and what doesn't, what it doesn't say. And the fact is, is Christians these days are known for like, opinions on two issues, gay marriage and, or like whatever, like just being homosexual in the world mm -hmm. and abortion rights. And to me, that is so grievously narrow mm -hmm. and totally, um, in some ways, completely outside the realm of Jesus's priorities, because one, Jesus never talked about either of these things. Right. The person that we are supposed to follow, Jesus Christ, God with us, like the teachings that he offered are the ones that we actually as Christians are supposed to be paying attention to. And they are the very things that would help reduce abortions of potentially viable pregnancies outside the womb, right? Like meaning those elected uh, abortions. So if people are so prior, like really want to prioritize that, to me, I'm like, there is a whole set of things that we could do, right? We could uh, support policymaking around access to birth control, comprehensive sex education, uh, paid family leave. Do they even do sex education in schools anymore? I have no idea. Yeah, I should. Well, know. they do, but again, simultaneously, the same groups that are supporting these anti-abortion movements are actually lobbying uh, to have sex education um, sort of privatized because parents can elect to have your children out of these classes, meaning mm -hmm. you can sign a paper and say, send my kid out because I want to do the sex education for my children at home, right. which is going to be a real winner. Right. Mm -hmm. And what sucks about it is I think the whole entire reason is because what is being normalized in sex education, which in my opinion, absolutely should be normalized is that there is great sexual diversity, including gender identity diversity that we're learning about. And what does it mean to be well and whole in that identity, wherever you land? Right. Well, that is really tricky for some people. 
So I think that's why they choose to take their children out. But at the same time, how oh, we live in a broad world. Why are we afraid of one another when we might learn something from one another? And you know, you know what scripture does teach? Scripture does teach that humanity is made in the divine image, which means if you actually engage another human, you might just be looking eye to eye with God herself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's so refreshing to for me personally to hear you know, your, your take on the whole thing, because I think I, you know, I think that the church gets a really bad name. Cause I always think of like, mm-hmm. you know, so, like church people, it's like Sunday people. And I'm not trying to be ugly. Like you said, I'm sure I'm going to offend someone. I'm sure I do every day anyway, but I don't mean that an ugly way because I feel, and I get pushed back a lot in my community. Like I was with my friend Kira the other day and She's like, how do you, how can you claim Jesus? She's like, look at these people here, Mm -hmm. like reading from the Bible with these life-size signs of like horrible things. This one woman was there and she had a sign and I, I was so confused at first. I thought it was for us. Like I thought it was make like joking on it. It was all these pictures of these women's in the fifties in kitchens. And it said, get back into the kitchen. And her, I'm assuming her husband, she had, they had all their children there too, was standing there reading, like screaming verses from the Bible. And what? Wait, wait, meaning she was absolutely supporting as if the 1950s were a great yes. time for a woman to be alive. I'll send you a picture of it. Wow. <laughs> and what struck me and kind of like what you're saying, like the two thing it's, um, is that she like, I don't know. I'm not even gonna say what struck me cause I'm going to let that lie. But I, I feel like, you know, you like go back to Kira's point. She's like, how can you claim Jesus? And I'm like, my relationship has always been like, Jesus, like hung out with like the prostitutes and the lepers, you know? And like his message was like, stop being so performative, start loving each other, start fighting for what you believe in, you know? And I, to me, that's always been the message, but then you, you know, people that claim to be, claim to be the church or claim to be what you should be in religion. I don't agree with. Right. And that's hard. That's really hard. And I think there are a good bit of people that are like me that feel that way too. Um, and it's like, where do, where do we go? <laughs> what do we do? Could you come back here and start a church for us? <laughs> so this is so hard, right? Because when the institutional church stops reflecting the Jesus we know and love, uh, we feel like we no longer have a home, mm-hmm. right? So there's you know, here and what's interesting here in Portland, Oregon, which is one of the most unchurched cities and one of the most unchurched or like irreligious states in the nation. So right before the pandemic, we uh, wanted to do some sort of nice, polite outreach event on Ash Wednesday. My friend and I stood there in our little clerical clerical collar and we were going to do ashes on the go so that if people walking by wanted to be marked with the sign of the cross, receive a little short blessing, they could. And it was just a little experiment. I was sort of curious. What do people on the streets of Portland think of me? Well, I can tell you what they thought of me. They thought I had grown two heads. Literally, if anyone saw me from like 20, 30 feet away, they intentionally put their heads down and walked to the other side of the street so as to avoid me. Mm. And I think part of that is because what I represent in that clerical wear is so far removed from the Jesus that we find in scripture, right? The one who... uh, who taught us to liberate the captives, to tend to the poor, 
If you have two cloaks, take off one and give it to your neighbor. I mean, Jesus was a real radical and he was so preoccupied with the sick, the marginalized, the outcast. He did not align himself with the powers that be religiously or politically. And so the fact is, in some ways, it doesn't surprise me that the institutional church might, as it institutionalizes, you know, move away from that Jesus. But the fact is, is um, for those of us who want to sort of align our lives to his teaching in some ways it's hard when the church has all of these different social teachings that feel so far removed from who he was or what he was about. Right. So when you're in church and you're giving your sermon, what, what type of things do, are you talking about? So I think all of us are storytellers naturally like human beings. And this is something I loved living in the South. I feel like Southerners really know how to spin a yarn mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was in North Carolina. I mean, even that phrase, I used that once out here and someone was like, what, what are you even saying? <laughs> right. And, um, I loved listening. Also, I'm super direct as a communicator. And what I found is that was not super effective right. in South Carolina because indirect, especially through storytelling was masterful. Sometimes I'd be listening in to someone like a minister talking to another minister and I wouldn't really understand what was happening. And then as I realized, as the story was unfolding, I was like, Oh, I see what we're all doing here. We're talking about something without talking about it. Mm-hmm. And we're really good at that. Ex- yeah. <laughs> and in some ways um, that can be problematic, but also really helpful because what you're doing is building rapport with someone by developing a shared narrative. So this is a long way of saying uh, when I preach, I lift up stories that have historically had deep value in people's lives. And basically a little bit like holding up something to the light. I hold it up for all of us to take a look at, to say, take a look at this with me and let's learn together Mm -hmm. because we do that with one another. This is why when you and I go sit down and have a cup of coffee, Sarah, and I say, tell me a story about this. I am listening carefully, watching your body move, uh, listening to your laughter, watching for social cues. The fact is stories are inhabited in in the telling of them. And so that's what I'm doing from the pulpit. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to take a story from a page and then embodying it for us to to examine because we think that these stories point us toward deeper truths about who God is and who we are called to be together. And that's what we're doing. And so I feel like similarly on these political issues or whatever they are, if we could listen to one another's stories first, like, and, and treat them as sacred, mm-hmm. we might actually find deeper truths together. No, I totally agree. That's why I've, I told John and my husband and, you know, we've been going back and forth because him and I feel the very same about this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to go, like I said, to the state house this week and next week we're going back because they're actually listening to the public. Um, and oh, yeah, tell me about that. I mean, are there people I'm curious to know if any legislators came out? Yeah, they did a ton. Actually, it was really. Wow. Um, but and some of like the ones that like when we were after we so we went in the state house and then a few came out there. And then when we went, but it was only the ones that were in agreement. Right. And then when we were like kind of marching around the state house, so I, so I was working with Ren, which is I don't know if you know what Ren is, but it's um, a group yes, here. OK, yeah, mm-hmm. they're based in Columbia. Ann Warner is the head and she's amazing, lovely, very smart, very well spoken and very, very, very driven. Um, and 
so when we were like marching around the building and there was like a lot of, there was like 400 people there or something doing this. It was really interesting. Um, but all these people that were in support, like came out and were like clapping and like tons of people were like honking and like cheering because I, I think a lot of people are like, I believe that there is a small group of people that are completely against it. And then people that are in the middle that are confused, like conflicted with their ideas, like we were speaking to. And then other people yep. who are like, this is insane. Like, why are we even doing this? This is like on like 50 years, just gone up in flames, you know? Um, and so back to the storytelling point it, so on next Thursday, I'll be able to go to the state house and they will listen to stories. And I got to tell our story this morning, mm -hmm. actually to a reporter at the post and courier. And he was an older man. Um, he told me he was 71. Um, and you know, as I'm telling him the story, I'm starting to cry. And he's like, he, he you could tell he was starting to get choked up because I told the story mm. from the beginning mm. to the end. And I didn't leave out one thing. I sent him a picture of my family now to see. And, um, you know, I told him the whole thing. And as I, you know, he, as you, t and I, and this is kind of part of the work that we do here. Like I always say, like the fitness gets people in the room, but the storytelling is what keeps mm. people coming back. Right. Because yes. we all just want to be like you were saying, seen in each other. And I think it's just really when we're, when we're super, super polarizing too, it doesn't help. I was telling my girls yesterday, I put a text out and there's probably like 20 women, um, ish that work here and, um, a few dudes. And I said, um, y'all, I'm really proud of you. I know y'all are in there telling your stories. I want you to be loud. But at the same time, what I'm learning through advocacy, like my very, like just tapping my toe in is that we also mm -hmm. have to be respectful, right? Because yes. if we want respect. We have to offer respect. Like when you're sitting with me, if you want to rage and scream and be angry, like I'm here for it. Like, let's, let's go. And like, like what we want, we have to be productive if we want the outcome that we want, right? Like if we just act like a bunch of screaming, crazy lunatic women, like we're going right. to be just a bunch of crazy screaming lunatic women, which we're entitled to be right now or anytime actually. But I think it's all about productivity too. It's like, we, what, what do we want this outcome to be? And yes. let's keep your freaking eye on the prize. You know, that's my thought anyway on it. Okay. So I have to tell you that something that I freaking love about the works as someone who sort of peeks in from the outside for the most part, is that in a lot of ways, your gathering resembles what church ought to be, right? Mm -hmm. Because you walk in, and I think in, in connection to what you're saying, I love that moment of preparation where people unroll a mat and it's theirs, their mat, their space, their body, where they get to connect in that shared space but I remember when I first started taking yoga before, like, I mean, years and years ago, and I first did that and began to get in touch with my breath, which by the way, in our scriptures, breath, ruach is the same Hebrew word for spirit. So every time we breathe, I literally believe that this is us being in touch with God's spirit in us, moving in us and coming out of us, moving in us and coming out of us. And I love that moment of preparation right on the mat where I am preparing to receive and to give and to collaborate, but this is me and my body here. And then as you move into a class, right, you have a guide, a spiritual guide, a physical guide, someone who's there helping you to embody a practice. And then all around you is support and collaboration. And to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, this yeah. is like one of the most beautiful experiences of worship I have experienced particularly when we bow ourselves before the teacher mm -hmm. and, and that would be God in you, 
Sarah right. or God and another teacher. Right. So, and that's my Christian interpretation and other people are going to certainly have their own interpretations, but this is us, um, tapping into our spiritual lives as much as our physical lives. And this is critical, especially if anyone wants to become an activist, mm -hmm. we have to be nurtured and nourished. If we want to go and live full, healthy lives, I mean, this is a part and parcel of it. Right. No, I agree. And I think, you know, people say that to us a lot. They're like, that's like coming to church, you know? And, um, yep. and I think it's cause we're all doing it together and it's, it's important to me that, you know, people can see themselves in our work and in our stories. Like we're not on some, like, mm -hmm. I'm not living up on some platform perfectly eating the right food and doing the right thing and saying the right thing and always acting great. And that was part of the reason why when I, you know, when I first started teaching, it was like the, the yoga journal kind of experience of like, you look a certain way, you eat a certain way, you weigh this much, you can put your leg behind your head and just talk about like basically scripture, right? Yoga Sutra. And I was like, huh, mm. I feel like such an imposter. I was like, this is, mm -hmm. I don't even relate to this. Like I'm literally leaving yoga to go get a cheeseburger. Am I, I can't tell anyone that, you know what I mean? Like, oh God. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it's so good to have all different types. Like there's nothing wrong with that way. It just wasn't the right. way that I was. So I wanted to like right. blow the lid off of that. Right. And that's why we named this place a sweat studio versus a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like just to bring it back to like the idea of church, like that's what I would love. I'd love a place where it felt, I could feel God. I could be honest about how I felt. And it wasn't like you're going to hell. Right. And I think this is, I feel like all of these banners, like even that woman holding the sign, but with the 1950s pictures and what she was reading from scripture, that just profoundly distances people or makes them recoil from the very thing she's trying to hold up as valuable, right? And these days, I feel like Christians are doing that right and left. Right. They're lifting up, even shouting ideas that are so inconsistent with other people's values without listening, right? that makes people not just reject them or their perspective, but to actually reject the God they represent. And I think that is heartbreaking. Yeah. As a Christian and as a person of faith, growing up, I assumed there were really specific, narrow ideas about a whole set of social issues. And it would have been really helpful for me to hear somewhere along the way that there were Christians that sort of stepped outside of those narrow parameters and still were people of faith. I guess what I want to say is that as a clergy person who supports reproductive choice, I want people to know that there are people who take their faith seriously and hold that position. And in fact, if you are interested in being an advocate around um, reproductive rights and bodily autonomy, there are actually 40, I learned this recently, that 40 religious denominational, denominational and Christian organizations support the right to safe and legal abortion, meaning even though that corpus of Christians is not loud, they are present and they are with you. And not because this is some battle to be won, right? That we're supposed to like champion the killing of babies, right? The idea of that is absolutely appalling. Right. There are people who recognize that this broad um, definition of a set of medical procedures are critical to the health and well-being of our society and people's bodies. And we have to trust women to be moral agents alongside caregivers, alongside a supportive group of people that help them uh, make good decisions. And this is not the right of Supreme Court justices to take away that constitutional and human right. I agree. So, Amen, sister. 
So I think a blanket ban on abortion, like a blanket definition of it is unhelpful and it's ultimately deadly to women. I think that's important to say because uh, if any of us are actually going to build bridges toward the other side, we have got to come up with ro more robust definitions and shared understandings of what abortion is. Right. So. Yeah. I, I think too, and just for the people that are listening, would you be comfortable if somebody was experiencing this, they reached out to you? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I knew you would be. You're a lover. Oh my gosh. I'm a lover. Come on. <laughs> I mean, and do you know, and this translates to so many things, right? Like if you have ever been made to feel like an outsider in the church, shamed because of a choice you've made or because of who you are, your identity, um, I want to be the person that helps mirror back God's love and delight in who you are. And if I can do that in any capacity to support you in your own journey, to listen to your story and to with you point out the divine places, those marks, those points of light, I would love to be able to be that person. I'm on your team championing you, whether I'm with you, whether we speak again or not. You are wonderful, Carmen. Thank you so much. I really, I really, really do appreciate it. Um, you know, I think for a lot of people, like I said, I get a lot of messages of people like, thank you so much for using your voice. I have stories, but I'm can't share. And I understand, I respect people's privacy, you know, but I think the more we can speak out loud and I know people will be listening to this, like the more this, I mean, this gives me hope. It gives me light. And I just, I really, really appreciate that. Um, will you tell our listeners where they can find you on social? And if you want to give your email address, <laughs> unfortunately, because I'm, you know, a gen Xer, that means that I'm old. <laughs> and that means that I, all of my like social media information uses my full name, which is extraordinarily long. <laughs> so if you want to find me, you can find me at Carmen, C-A-R-M-E-N dot Getchus, G-O-E-T-S-C-H-I-U-S. I think that's uh, what I use. I don't even know on Instagram and Facebook. I can all post it when, the, when this comes out too. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Um, well, thank you so much and come back to visit soon and you're the best. It's so helpful. Like this perspective, like you're not in South Carolina, right? So you don't know what it, it's a totally different experience for us than it is for you. Um, I called my dad when it happened that last Friday, I think I'd picked my kids yeah. up and he answered and I just started crying and he's like, what, what are you yeah. crying about? And I was like, they, you know, he knew. And he was like, oh yeah. He's like, Cause he lives in Boston and he's like, Sarah, I, I, it is devastating. He's like, but I, my perspective is so different. It's not going to change anything in Massachusetts. You know, That's most right. likely it's the same in Oregon. I've got two little precious daughters, Sarah. And I promise you one of the first things I thought of is I'm glad I'm not in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. I think about at 12, you know, uh, because I was advanced maternal aid. So, uh, but then you do all this genetic testing, of course. And what's amazing to me is I'm like, so none of that, is necessary in South Carolina anymore because I would have, uh, gestationally been at like eight to 10 weeks yeah, when we that... would have found out all of that information. Totally. Yeah. And absolutely. If my baby had a devastating disease and I know I am preaching to the choir and I know I feel like I'm treading on something so sacred, even by just saying it out loud with you. No, Sarah, I'm, I'm glad you're saying it. But if I would have had a baby with a devastating disease in my belly, a very much wanted baby, like your very much wanted babies, mm -hmm. I would have absolutely aborted that baby. Yep. I would have laid in the bath and I would have cried and I would have said goodbye. And I would have elected to have an abortion so that baby would not grow inside me and suffer outside the womb. Yep. And I think women 
of every persuasion should have the right to make that decision. Yeah, because it's really hard, you know, it's like, this make, making me want to cry, but like, it's, there's so much shame associated with it as it is. And then to tell someone, well, too bad, your decision, your, your decision doesn't matter. And if you're going to do this, you need to go to another state and well, if you have the means, you know, and the support, but otherwise, bye, see you later. I mean, and that's like, brings up a whole other topic, like of genetic testing. Like, are they going to even keep doing it? Like, what's the point? Like, are they even going to do an anatomy scan at 20 weeks? Who cares? Right. You know, totally. I think what breaks my heart, all of this shaming and silencing around this, Sarah, my God, people are so isolated in their suffering. Mm -hmm. So not only if you elect to have an abortion, you come back home and live your life as if nothing ever happened to the outside world. And what you need, what you're in desperate need of is someone to come alongside you and say, tell me how you are. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you are. I will walk with you. I mean, and if the church was really doing a good job, it would say, let's create a service for you, just you and me and God, right? So that you have a space to grieve and name what has been and, and, and name what moving forward into your life is going to look like and know that you're supported and loved and held. Yep. I agree. I mean, there's just so much shaming that is completely unnecessary. And I think people live with that. I do too. I do too. And, and they don't need to. No, they don't. Especially not around this. I mean, not around anything, but like, especially not around this. Like I was speaking to someone the other day and they were talking about, I think we definitely thought a little bit differently in like how, um, abortion shouldn't be a contraceptive. And I said, have you ever had an abortion? Have you ever walked into Planned Parenthood? You know, have you? And she said, no. And I said, I don't think I, anybody has an abortion and goes, you know what? I'm going to have unprotected sex. Fuck it. If I needed to have an abortion again, I will because totally. it's costs money. It's super emotional. You bleed for a really, really long time. It's painful. Like that's yeah. not like, I don't think anybody sets out to be like, this is how I'm going to be, you know, like I'm going right. to, I'm going to do this. And then if I, I mean, yes, to know that it's there, that is a nice safety net, but I don't think the intention is like, let me have, you know, 17 abortions. Right. Well, and this is something really perplexing to me because I have met some people that have really strong opinions about abortion and are definitely situated within a pro-life stance and movement. And they use really ungenerous language, like literally we'll use the phrase abortions of convenience. 97% of abortions are abortions of convenience. Uh, That's what some guy said to me the other day, and he wrote this whole thing and I read it and I, before I could screenshot it, he deleted it. He was like, only 1% of abortions are that of, you know, a sick baby or whatever it was. And I was like, you dumbass, shut up. Yes. That, and what that is, is ignorance and it's willful ignorance because they don't want to listen longer, learn more. That's yeah. what that is. Yeah. Because one, that is inaccurate. And two, the idea that people would march, like, I think that what, uh, what often like folks who elect to have an abortion, this is how they're portrayed as these are irresponsible, wanton women Mm -hmm. that go around having unprotected sex, knowing that I don't need to take responsibility because there's always an abortion clinic around the corner. Mm -hmm. The idea of that is absolute madness. Women that seek an abortion, uh, for an elected abortion, for a potentially viable fetus, right? That's the kind of category mm-hmm, we're talking mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. For the most part, there there are sort of devastating reasons people go. They've had unprotected sex, and they know 
that was a mistake. Right. I cannot have a baby for a whole variety of reasons. I'm going to need to have this taken care of. And they probably will never have unprotected sex again. But even with protected sex, uh, uh, they fail. It is not fail safe. Right. right. And if you're a single mama raising a couple of babies and all of a sudden you find yourself pregnant again, you need to have that option to abort, to be able to care well for yourself and your babies. Yep. And then uh, you've got the children who have been raped. And here's the thing, too. For some reason in my area of ministry, when I think about people I have loved and cared for over the years, Sarah, do you know who come to me? So many people who have been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. And many of whom have ended up pregnant. And the idea that that trauma must be relived throughout pregnancy as a forced mandate feels really unacceptable to me. Mm -hmm. And there are so many reasons to be compassionate about elected abortions, right? And so the idea that these men in particular who have no idea uh, what it means to raise, like to, to have, to be pregnant, that they would be able to like wax poetic about who does what and why they do it and when, I mean, it's just laughable. I know. And I was reading something and I know there's so many things going around, but, uh, the Senator in Tennessee, he, and I'm just going to quote it cause I just pulled up my phone. He said, so with respect to rape and incest, this comes up often. And I've thought, and I've prayed very hard about this. And I just have a hard oh, time sure saying that two wrongs <laughs> Two wrongs make a right. I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, okay, and this is where we're talking past one another, okay? Pro-choice people are talking about women's rights. Pro-lifers are talking about babies' rights. And this is where I feel like we need to come back, since we're talking past one another, to the question of when does life begin? And it is absolutely unfair to say in the embryonic stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that most philosophers and medical ethicists would agree. Yeah. Right? So the idea that, like, someone who's six weeks pregnant... This thing doesn't have a brain. This little thing is not developed yet. It's not a sentient being, meaning it doesn't feel. Right. It doesn't feel. It doesn't sense. It's not a full person yet. So let's talk about the personhood of the woman who was raped. Mm -hmm. And let's go ahead and restore uh, agency where it belongs, which is to her. Everything has been taken from her in that moment. Let's go ahead and give her some power back. Yeah. yeah. It is not your authority that is at play here. Right. It's just appalling to me. It is absolutely appalling. Uh, girl, I, I feel think, you. <laughs> it's, we, and we got, I think we got to push these folks to say like, especially like, and also lean into ethicists, right. And medical ethicists. Like when I read all of that, that your OB that you're going to have on like page after page, the questions, the very specific medical questions she had about the very unique, like pregnancies that she faces in the medical field and the, you know, the possibility of death and or losing her job, right? The, the stakes are very high here. Mm-hmm. Not only just losing her job, but going to jail. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. And because she has two children. Now, she lives right behind me. She has two children that go to the same schools as my kids. Like, you know, she's just, she's just trying to live her life and do the right thing. And she's an amazing doctor. I mean, these are, this is why these are really frightening days because it is not just about caring for the unborn. No, this is about, it's about power. It's about power. Oh girl, we could go on and on, but 
I think I really, I, like I said before, I just, I think this is killer perspective for people and I just really appreciate you coming on and sharing yourself and sharing your stories and sharing your feelings. And I'm sure this is not the last time we're going to talk about this. So I think this is a marathon and not a sprint for sure. Um, and I think for those of us that believe that we need to, you know, fix this, (laughs) Mm -hmm. we just really need to be listening to each other from, and sharing our stories and sharing if those of you that are listening, like if heard something from Carmen here that, you know, you could relate to, like, please share with people because ultimately it's like she said, you know, this is about women's rights and the agency of the the mother as well. And that's getting really, really lost. And it's really, really scary. I had a, a girl message me yesterday, someone who did my teacher training many years ago. She's an attorney in town, very smart mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. woman. And she said, I, my husband and I were starting to think about family planning and I just took it off the table. Wow. Yeah. It's scary. I mean, my partner right now, my business partner in the cycle studio, she's yeah. pregnant and she's like, she's great. You know, she's oh. wonderful. But she said, what if when I go to have my next baby, something happens, you know, like these aren't things that like the average woman probably considered before. I mean, with my circumstances, yes, it was always on the table, but you know, like it's just wild. So anyway, I appreciate all the good work you're doing and I miss you and I love you. And thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sarah. Good to chat soon. All right. Bye. Okay. Just one more thing. This week, I was preaching at the church I serve in Portland, Oregon, and unbeknownst to myself or the congregation, while I was speaking, there was someone leaving some graffiti on the walls outside. And that graffiti said, stop believing and start thinking. And my sense is that criticism is timely and apt. Because I think there are a lot of people out there who assume that Christians, for the most part, are people who have inherited a set of beliefs and they haven't thought critically about those. And that translates to social issues as well. But what I wish I could have said to that person who left the graffiti is that there are many people of faith who are rigorous intellectuals, who think critically about the world and about ideas and are listening to people beyond their walls and beyond their institution. The most vocal Christian groups in the United States do not represent the majority of Christians. They don't. They don't represent the whole, and they don't have to represent your perspective. If you're out there wondering if you can be a Christian and pro-choice, if you have some doubt about that, I want to answer unequivocally, yes. You can absolutely affirm the sacredness of life and the gift and beauty of bringing life into this world and simultaneously affirm that women are moral agents who can make these decisions for themselves about their own pregnancies, about their own contexts and what it means to bring this particular life into the world. There are a diversity of perspectives on when life begins, whether you are a religious group that affirms that life begins at your first breath and you have sacred texts to support that, or you're another group that thinks gestationally life begins at another point There are Christians who are engaging this with nuance. And many of us who believe that decisions about pregnancy and bringing life into the world need not uh, lie at the hands of Supreme Court justices or indifferent legislators, but they should be rightfully returned, these decisions, to the hands of women. Because they can make these decisions for themselves. Even if some women make a decision that you might disagree with. 
Women are moral agents who can make decisions for themselves. 